The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor-teacher, Harry Reeder. Folks, if you're able, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Turn with me to a text we will be in for two weeks, Luke chapter 14. Luke 14, if you're visiting with us and don't have a Bible, that's why we put the Pew Bible there just for you. Just turn to page 873. Children, you can make your way to Children's Church to my left. There'll be those there to greet you and take you to the Children's Worship Center for a time in God's Word and praise. The rest of you make your way to your... And by the way, if you don't have a Bible, please feel free to take that Bible home with you. That's our gift to you. And see Cindy and I, it's great to have you as visitors. We have another gift for you. And we also have a little Bible study we'd be glad to give you as well if you ask us for it. It's just on basic Christianity to go with that Bible. And then if you would, uh, if you're there in Luke 14, we're going to read verses 1 through 6. But you bear with me just for a moment. It's the fall. Things are kind of starting up. Folks, for two years, we have been in a ministry focus called LEAD, L-E-A-D, Lifestyle of Evangelism and Discipleship. We're bringing that to a conclusion this fall and then Advent season. And, um, and, and out of that, we are, have developed, please listen carefully, we have developed, in fact, this isn't new. At Briarwood, back in the 80s and 90s, we had this thing called the basics. And what we're doing is just kind of redeveloping the basics. Except we're going to do, instead of four, we're going to do five. And it's going to be five ten-week studies on the basics. We're calling it foundations. It's lead curriculum for every small group and congregational community. So what I propose to do is to preach on the lifestyle of evangelism this morning, the lifestyle of discipleship from Luke 14 next Sunday, and then take each one of those elements in one sermon to give you an overview. And then in the January, we will roll out the 10-week studies on each one of them through the communities and the congregational communities. Harry, what are those five basics? I'm glad you asked. So if you will come for every Sunday, you will find out exactly what they are this fall. So I'm not going to preempt myself. Story spoiler will not happen from the pulpit right now. So you just come. But you can get a preview. On Wednesday morning for the men and Wednesday night, Bruce is giving an overview of each one this fall to prepare us for the rollout as well as the sermons that I'll be doing. And uh, so that's what we're doing. And then I'm now picking back up on the 24 sermons I did on lifestyle of evangelism and discipleship. I'm picking back up now with the 25th to take us through into the Advent. Thank you for being 
being patient with me at getting that information to you. And uh, so that's what we will be doing, bringing this focus to a conclusion to lead us into the, the discipleship and evangelism curriculum next uh, next year. Will you look with me now in Luke 14? And we're going to take a big overview of verses 1 through 24. Let's start with verses 1 through 6. This is God's word. It's the truth. One Sabbath, when he, that's Jesus, went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that had fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. The grass withers, the flower fades. God's word abides forever by his grace and his mercy. May his word be preached for you. Please be seated. Okay. Uh, fall season. Thank you for bearing with me, getting all of that out. I'll try to get back over it with you. Oh, one other thing. In the middle, uh, I did the 24 sermons, and now we're coming back to them. In the middle, I did 49 sermons on First Peter, which I believe is the best letter on a lifestyle of evangelism and discipleship, that we're always ready to give an account of the hope that's within us. So I did for you a summation of our study of First Peter and put it on a note sheet, and I've made that available for you in your worship folder that you can take with you. Now, we come to number 24. In a lifestyle of evangelism and discipleship. And we're going to look at compelling evangelism. A lifestyle of evangelism, compelling evangelism, and Christ's call to compelling evangelism. But as we get there, yes, it's the fall. That means in Alabama, football. Okay, let me say, football, great sport, bad God. So don't let it be God. So... But football, and therefore you're going to tune into football, and you're going to find people who are commentators, play-by-play and color commentator. And can I tell you something that's going to happen each week? The commentator is going to say to you at halftime, well, the coaches are getting to the locker room, and they're going to make halftime adjustments in their strategy for the second half. That's what they're going to tell you. Now, the fact is, that may or may not be true. Just, I'll let you in on a back story here. Yes, there will be adjustments, but the adjustments aren't necessarily in response to what happened on the first half. In fact, the coach is not a dummy. The coach planned out the strategy for the first half, and very likely the strategy in the first half was to set up the change that they're going to do in the second half. They're not just doing it on the fly. They've actually planned on that. And so they're going to the second half and they're going to make a strategic change. Now, sometimes the other team does surprise you. So you have to on the fly make a strategy change. Well, that's what's happening in Luke 14. Halftime. Playbook strategy change. One had been planned The other one was reactive. So here's Jesus. He is opposed in his public ministry. How long is Jesus' public ministry? About how long? Three years. Luke 14, we're about the halfway point. 
And Jesus makes a change. Here's the change. From here on in, he is going to predominantly teach with parables and allegories. From here on in, he's making a shift to parables and allegory. Now, what's a parable? It's a simile in a short story form. An allegory is a collection of metaphors in a story form. A parable, here's how, how do you spot a simile? Come on, English students, how do you spot a simile? Like or as? Well, that's how you spot a parable. The kingdom of God is like, is as. That's how you spot, spot one. But here's why I'm making the point. A, para, a, a simile has a singular focus. So does a parable. I can still hear my homiletics professor telling me, in a parable, Harry, remember, a parable is a one-legged animal, and you've got to find a way to make it walk in a sermon. It's a one-legged, it has one singular point. It may have some supporting points, but it's got one point. Now, Jesus makes the turn. Luke and Matthew emphasize this, and they bring the parables. Luke 14, this Sunday and next Sunday, we're looking at uh, uh, four of his parables, three of them this morning, in an overview, three of them, and they all are what we'll call banquet parables. Taking banquet, which actually Jesus just came to. He's at a banquet, a dinner party has been called by a ruler of the Pharisees and Jesus comes and Jesus strategic shift that was already planned. And now he moves to parables and you're going to get three in a row sitting at this banquet table. He's going to give three banquet parables. You got that? And each one of them have a lesson and each one builds on the other, which is why I'm going to try to do all three of them for you this morning. Each one of them we could dive into. But what I'm going to do is try to swim on top and give you those uh, the three parables and how they're building on each other. Because there's a singular point I want to make with you of putting the three together concerning the lifestyle of evangelism. Now, Jesus has a number of adversaries. One of the adversaries he has is the Pharisees. Now, they make a they are making a playbook strategy shift. What is their halftime shift? Well, right in the middle of Jesus public ministry, they up until now. Now they have tried to get in a debate with Jesus and they have sought debates with Jesus, public debates with Jesus. Now, when you get in a debate with Jesus, who do you think is going to win? This is not hard, folks. Let me try that one more time. Who do you think is going to win? So they're going to shift. They are tired of getting shut down in debates. Did you notice what I just read? Now they hold a dinner to catch him, scrutinize him. See what it says? Watch him closely. Can we, we can't debate with him. Let's try to catch him doing something in opposition to the law of God. So here is a dinner party on a Sabbath. And they've arrived at the home of a ruler of the Pharisees. He is not going to get in a debate. Not only does it give you their new strategy, let's watch him closely, let's catch him, gotcha. They're in a gotcha strategy. 
But the second thing I want you to see is their purpose. Did you notice when I just read two different times it said they didn't say anything? It says, one, they were silent. Secondly, they could not reply to it. They're not, you, Jesus, he even asked him a question. He said, let me ask you, let me ask you a couple of questions. Because when he gets there, there's a man that needs to be healed. He's got something, it's called hydro, hydro, hydrocopathy in the, in the Greek. It's translated dropsy. It's the only time you find it in the New Testament, dropsy. Now, by the way, when I was, I'm, I'm, I don't hear it much anymore, but when I was growing up, somebody would say, well, they got the dropsy. And you know, I was just a little kid. Dropsy, what does that mean? They're just lazy. They just drop wherever they get. And then I found out, no, that's not what dropsy means. And what this means is they are, they have a rather grotesque collection of fluid. That, you know, and I imagine the underlying cause would be something like congestive heart failure or something like that. But they would have a collection of fluid, which meant they would almost always be ready to die. But it wasn't the dropsy. The dropsy was the symptom. And then the, here he is with this dropsy and uh, right in front of him. And they're all watching him. Is he going to break the Sabbath by healing him? So Jesus asked a question. He said, is it lawful? To heal on the Sabbath. Now, according to the traditions of men added to God's word, yes, the Pharisees said you couldn't do that. Now, you can see how, how ridiculous that is, because number one, the Bible doesn't say you can't heal on the Sabbath. And by the way, isn't the Sabbath there to heal your soul? Well, if, you, if spiritual healing's okay, why wouldn't physical healing be okay? They realize they're about to get trapped, and so it says they were silent. And then he says, well, so let me give you a second question. You got a son and you got an ox. Not a lot of difference between the two. You got a son and you got an ox. And one, and, and your, your son or your ox falls into a, into a well. And it's the Sabbath. Wouldn't you immediately pull him out? And what I love is they were silent. I'm trying to imagine if I was the son of that Pharisee and Jesus asked him a question. If your boy falls in a well on the Sabbath, would you pull him out? My daddy's silent. You know, that's not good news about your college uh, tuition. That is not good news at all. So he, so they're, he's silent because they know they're about to get drawn in. So Jesus, when he shuts them up, not in a debate, they're afraid to debate. They're trying to catch him in something. He makes a point. I may be violating your traditions, but I am not violating God's word. And, and by the way, that, that's consistent with reality, isn't it? An ox or a son, you would pull them out of the well. This guy's in trouble. So what am I going to do? It says he took him and healed him and sent him away. And they remained silent. That opened the door for his three parables. Let's look at the first one. Look with me, if you would. Go with me to verse 8. Here's the first one, uh, verse 7. Now he told a parable to those who were invited. When he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. 
and he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will be then you will begin with shame to take the lower place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, notice, here's the occasion. They're at a banquet. And he so he looks at the banquet and he's looking at the guests. And what does he see? All of the guests are jockeying for the seats of honor. He's seen them do that. And so when he watches them jockeying, trying to maneuver to get in the seat of honor, he then says to them, friends, when you're invited by someone to a dinner like this, a, a feast like this, a guest place like this, and you're on the list and you come and you go and try to get the seat of honor and then the person that belongs to comes in and they have to move you. What does that do? You just positioned yourself for shame. Why don't you go get the lower place? And the one who made the invitation list also has the seating arrangement. Then when he puts you where you belong, then you're honored by him. Why don't you learn to do that? Of course, none of us are ever guilty of that, are we? Can I tell you the utter conviction that was renewed in my soul when I was studying for this in the last weeks? It was when I was in Charlotte, North Carolina, and one of these wonderful um, outside of the city of Charlotte um, textile towns uh, in Belmont, North Carolina. Uh, they have this wonderful Presbyterian church. It, the name of that church is uh, Goshen Presbyterian. How do you like that name? Goshen Presbyterian. What a great name. Well, they would have they would have their big homecoming meetings. And when they had their homecoming meetings, they would they would invite a guest preacher and they invited me. Now, it was a there was a wonderful people to preach to. But the second thing was this. During the the week of meetings on Wednesday night, they had barbecue night. And this place was that Goshen Presbyterian made the best pig picking you've ever into. They even did their own pork skins. It was unbelievable. That's the greatest Eastern style barbecue, Eastern Carolina barbecue possible to eat. And so I was looking forward to preach. I was looking forward to the barbecue. So when I was in those days, my children were younger. So I would always try to instead of daddy going away to do ministry, daddy would try to take them with me to things. So I took my son to that one. I figured he would probably like barbecue. And so he went with me. And uh, I said, my son, stand next to me. And I knew what they would do. Visiting preacher would be asked to pray. So I just kind of worked my way in the fellowship hall where I knew that's the first of the line. And, um, And that means you can get the bottom part of the barbecue where it's still moist and uh, my mouth's starting to water right now. It's getting close to 12. And uh, so and so I get close. I hear son, come with me. And so we went there. Sure enough, they asked me to pray. Sure enough, I prayed. And then they said, oh, pastor, you're right there. Why don't you start us off? Well, okay, if you insist. And uh, then we finish the meal and I go in to preach. Guess what I'm preaching? 
Luke 14. In the middle of it, I am utterly convicted of my sin. I've never done this, but about three times in my entire ministry, I stopped and said, hold it. I cannot preach what I've prepared for y'all because I am so guilty of this. And not only that, I taught this to my son. I said, son, forgive me. Congregation, forgive me. I maneuvered to get to first place. I should have got the last place and then let them put me there if they wanted to. If they didn't want to, then I'm where I ought to be. So, folks, this is something that that's the old man in us. We want the best. Have you ever noticed, even when we confess our sin, we make a case for ourselves. We're always trying to best position ourselves. And Jesus is watching them do that. Now, Pastor, who do you think is doing that? A bunch of Pharisees? Now, look, I got news for you. Not only the Pharisees, you know who else might have been doing that? His disciples. Hey, why would you think that? Well, let me, let me surprise you a little bit more. Maybe some people in his own family were doing that. Because you do know two of his disciples who two different times asked for the position of honor and their mother made a case for them one time. Who were those two people? James and John, who were what? His cousins. Because their mother was Mary's sister, Salome. So, folks, this is so easily found within us. So Jesus is making the point to them that when they come to the banquet table, there is a particular principle. Let me give it to you. Here's the lesson from this parable. Remember, it's got a singular lesson. Here it is. The guests of the Lord's banquet of salvation are to renounce all self-promotion. The guests... Now, Harry, why did you throw in there the Lord's banquet of salvation, folks? I'm I'm anticipating where we're going. So let me go ahead and tell you. Jesus isn't doing... He's not only at a banquet. There is a prophecy of him back in Isaiah 25. It's called the Messiah's banquet. The Messiah's wedding feast. He is... That's what he's... and, And you'll also find it in Revelation 19. The wedding feast of the Messiah, the bridegroom. The wedding feast of the Lamb. It is... It is... It is the metaphor for salvation that God has spread at his banquet table. The feast of salvation by grace through the mediatorial work of his Messiah, his son, Jesus Christ. And when you get to that table, your focus is on the host of the banquet, not your seat. Those invited to the table. Now, listen. Yes. Yes. This is good manners. Okay. Son, forgive me. I taught you bad manners. Yes, this is good manners. When you go somewhere to somebody's home, don't go try to get the, the best seat. You get four families together and you go on a fam, uh, four family vacation, don't try to take the best bedroom. The, learn how to take the lesser position. And if somebody wants to honor you, they honor you. If you don't, it's fine. We're right where we need to be anyway. So don't, uh, yes, this is manners, but this is more than this. This is telling you something. When someone comes to the table of the Lord, the table, Table of salvation, the banquet of salvation, that only Christ.
Christ can provide. When someone comes to the banquet of salvation, they come renouncing all self-promotion. It's not about us. It may be for us, but it's not about us. It's all about him. Here's the second one. He then goes to a second one. Because when you got a banquet, you not only have guests, what else do you have? This isn't hard. Come on, hang with me. You have host. You can't have guests unless you got a host. So now he turns to the host. Go to the next, go to the next, par- uh, the next passage with me. So you've been with me this verse seven. And so he ends up with that glorious statement. He who humbles himself will be, uh, if, if that, uh, he who humbles himself will be exalted. He exalts himself will be humble. That's a quote from, Pro- hey, hold it. Wait, I got to do this. That's a quote. That last verse I just read. He who humbles himself will be exalted. He who exalts himself will be humble is a quote from Proverbs. It's a quote from James. It's a quote uh, from Luke, and it's a quote from, oh, please, would somebody please say First Peter? First Peter, thank you so much. It's a quote from First Peter. It's quoted throughout the Scriptures and referenced through the Scripture. It's a basic principle. Those who come to the Lord come denying themselves. Not seeking their own self-promotion. And then he says, then he says, and then he turns to the, to the host factor. Look if he would at verse 12. He also said to the man who had invited him, that is the host, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a, vi- a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the, and I prefer this translation, the resurrection of the righteous or the resurrection of the just. So he turns to those who give parties, who give these dinners. And he says, don't go, don't just make the list. Now, you're going to invite your friends. You're going to invite your family. You're going to invite others. But when you're thinking through your invitation list, don't think of those when they come, you'll benefit Think of those who will benefit if they come. Those who need it. The marginalized. The lost. The least. The last. Nobody would invite them. Why should you invite them? Because you and I are one of them. We are one of them. We were spiritually, spiritually lame, poor, bankrupt, in need. And we were on his list. And he invites us. Now, is there again, is there a nice lesson for us when we give table, when we give uh, meals? Don't give meals so you can tell people, do you know who came to my meal? You ought to see my invitation list. And don't invite the people that you want to invite you. Invite the people that need to be there. That's who you invite. And that will extend beyond that premier invitation list. 
They'll go to those who need to be there. Now, yes, that's something. But here's something. Here's what you need to see in Christ and Isaiah 25. Here's your second parable, banquet parable lesson. And here it is. The host of the banquet banquet of salvation, that's Jesus, invites those who need him, not those whom he needs. Now, stop and think about this. Who does Jesus need? Nobody. But you still got invited. He invited you, not because he needed you. He invited you because you needed him. We love him because he first loved us. Jesus does not save us from our sins at the banquet of grace because he needs us. He saves us because he loves us. That's why he saves us. Now, folks, hang with me. Please don't misrepresent me here. I know this phrase is very, uh, is very popular, but I don't think it's right. Well, I want to love like Jesus. Jesus loved me unconditionally. No, he didn't. Jesus loved you by meeting God's conditions to love a sinner. He died for you. Here's what, G- here's what we say. Here's what we know about God. He says this. I will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. So let me ask you a question today. Are you guilty? Anybody here guilty of sin? Yeah, everybody. I hope you know that. But you are anticipating eternal life. If God has an inflexible judgment of condemnation, the soul that sinned, not just the body, the soul, an eternal death, the soul that sinned shall surely die. Then how is it I can live? It's because this just God found the way to be both just and justifier of a sinner. His son took our place. God's love is unmerited. It's unwanted. It's relentless. It is undeserved. But it is efficient because God himself met the conditions of holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Therefore, there's coming a day where you can participate in the resurrection of the just. Hear the phrase? The resurrection of the righteous. Why? Not because of self-righteousness. But because of a divine righteousness, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For in it, the righteousness of God 
is revealed. So that by his blood, my sins are washed away. With his righteousness, I am clothed and made acceptable and carried up to glory. And God himself did that for me. When he didn't need me, he wanted me. And when I needed him, I didn't want him. Yet this God has done that work. And when you know that you're in the resurrection of the righteousness because of the righteousness of God given to us freely in Christ, then you'll see it with an invitation list that goes to people just like us. If there, listen, if in my mind I'm getting to heaven because of what I've done or what I've contributed, my invitation list will reveal my self-righteousness. But if I know I was invited Not because of me, but in spite of me. To save me. Because God loved me when I was unlovable. Then that frees up my invitation list to be with no discrimination. No partiality. It doesn't matter color. It doesn't matter social. It doesn't matter economic. It doesn't matter. I'm free now. Can I mix the metaphor? I am free to spread the gospel in the whole field. Not just pick the parts I want want. I'm free free to put everybody on the invitation list because I was on the invitation list. And I shouldn't have been. I brought nothing to the table but my need. He brought everything to the table that saves me. His son, Jesus. One more, one more, one more parable. Look with me very quickly. I've only got a few moments to look at it. Here's what he says in verse 16. He says this to us, I'm sorry, in verse, uh, in verse 12. Uh, where am I? Verse 15, I'm sorry. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Folks, stop right here. It's obvious this guy got it. You're talking about Isaiah 25. You're talking about the feast of God. You're talking about the feast of eternity. You're talking about the banquet of grace. Blessed is everyone who eats from that banquet table. And that when soon as he says that, Jesus then brings a point to it. Look what he says in the next verse. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet. Now he's all now you understand two banquets to get to understanding the great banquet. A man gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The just the first said to him, I bought a field and I must go out to see it. May I have an excuse? And another said, I bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please, may I have an excuse? And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. I imagine she said, that's not on your calendar today. So I can't come. So can I have an excuse? So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to the servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled, the blind and the lame. Does that sound familiar? That's what the host was. That's what the host does. 
Bring in the poor, the blind, and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of these men who were invited shall taste my banquet. So here he said, now he goes. The third parable is the great banquet. Now all all pretense is off. We know what we're talking about. We're talking about Isaiah 25. We're talking about Revelation chapter 19. Now, folks, can I take you back to the first century? It's not that different today. In the first century, this was a big deal when you had a banquet. So what you would do was send out an invitation to the people that were on the invitation list. It's kind of like today we do a save the date. Save the date. Put this date down. I've got a banquet. I'm invi- You're invited to the banquet. And uh, so uh, it went out to all of them. But then, you know, it's kind of like, and then second, when you go to somebody's house for the banquet, you don't go in and start sitting at the table. What do you do? You go mill around and you talk and, and you know the host of the hostess will come and say, OK, it's those wonderful words. It's time to eat. That's the second invitation. So here's the first invitation. Any and all on the list. And by the way, I'm inviting everybody. I'm inviting the needy. And that's everybody. Then it came time to eat at the table. Sit at the table. And notice what it says. All had an excuse. Go check. He gives you three of the excuses. But it's not just three that had an excuse. It says they all had an excuse. They all turned down the second invitation to actually sit at the table. And look at the excuses. These first one is, well, uh, I, uh, I, I, I bought some I bought a piece of land and I need to go examine it. You what? I can't come because I need to go examine the land that I bought. Who in the world ever bought a piece of land without first examining it? Why do you need to go examine it now? That's an excuse. That's a manufactured excuse. It's ludicrous. Well, I bought five yoke of oxen. I need to go take a look at them. Who in the world ever bought five yoke of oxen without looking at their teeth first? You know you looked at the oxen first. And by the way, I'm married. I got to take out the trash. Sorry, I can't come to the meal. That, I mean, we just don't, I'm married and on our marriage, we don't have social events. No, they're all ridiculous. Folks, I want to stop right here, please. And thank you for being patient with me. I got to stop right here. I am trying to tell you exactly what you just sung in my, one, of, one of my three favorite hymns. I only wished it was in our hymnal, but God willing, we're going to sing it more. And thank you, John, for working it together in choir for what you did. Isaac Watts wrote the hymn that you heard in the choir when he read the passage I just read. Now listen to what you sung. How sweet and awesome is the place with Christ within the doors while the table everlasting love displays the choices of her stores. While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire. Oh, we listen to the first invitation. We admire the feast. But each one of us cries with thankful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? It's only my need 
that got me on the list. Why was I made to hear your voice and enter the banquet while there's room when thousands make a wretched, manufactured, excuse choice and they would rather starve than come? Note the end of the parable. Those that don't come to the table are lost forever in a place called hell. Yet I came. Why did I not make that wretched choice? Here's why. Twas the same love that spread the feast that sweetly compelled us in. Else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. Pity the nations, O God. Don't just stop in the streets of the city. Go to the highways, the byways, the lanes, the hedges. Pity the nations, O our God. Constrain the whole earth to come. Send your victorious word abroad. But folks, it doesn't get abroad if we don't take it. Send your glorious word abroad and bring all the strangers home. We long to see your churches full, that all the chosen race may with one voice and heart and soul sing your redeeming grace. It's one thing to be invited to the feast. It's another thing to show up and sit down. Who does that? Those who are compelled. Here's the takeaway. Let me give you the takeaway. God, um, just all three parables together. God saves those who need him, even though they do not want him. By pursuing them with a compelling message, with compelling messengers, and with a compelling minister. Compelling message. Do you know what you get to leave here and tell people? Every religion in this world tells people what they got to do or give to maybe get something called salvation. You get to go and tell people there's a God who loves you. And it's not what you do and give. In fact, that's really part of the problem. It's what he did and gave for you. His son. Because he loves you and you need him. You don't deserve him, but you need him. I went to a banquet of a wonderful guy I love dearly, have supported because of his ministry to college and high school and college students. And when he got to the end, he said, folks, I'm asking you to give because these students deserve to hear about Jesus. I went up to him afterwards and I said, I want you to know we're giving because you do a great job. But I do want to say this to you. I'm not sending you because they deserve Jesus. I know what we deserve. And it's not Jesus. That's grace. I'm sending you because they need Jesus. And you love Jesus. And you will compel them with a compelling message to come to Jesus. We have a glorious good news gospel. Do not expect the world to... Expect the world to make an excuse manufactured 
unless God changes the heart. The world will always come up. Why? Because the good news is not good news. It's a scandal. It's an offense. Nobody wants to be told I'm a sinner, need a savior. Nobody wants to be told I can't save myself and my church and religion can't save me. And nobody wants to be told and nobody wants to be told that there's no other way but Jesus. Unless Jesus changes the heart. We have a compelling message of grace. Take it to the world. Take it throughout all the world and be compelling messengers. What kind of messengers are compelling? We're not compelling. That is drawing people to Christ if we're like them or if we're self-righteously different than them. We are when God does something in us and we are what we are by the grace of God, then God does something in us. So we're, what makes us compelling is we have renounced ourselves, not promote ourselves. We have renounced ourselves at the table of salvation. And that's what compels people who come in. And we go and we pray for them. And we go and we speak to them. Compelling messengers renounce self-promotion and relentlessly pursue with perseverance and persistence and passion People who don't yet know Christ and haven't come to him. One of my favorite moments is to sit down with someone after sharing with them the love of Christ is to ask this question. Is there any reason you shouldn't receive Jesus right now? I'm always ready for a manufactured excuse. And then I get the chance to say, can I answer that reason? I want to tell you about the one who loves you. And finally, finally, you need a compelling minister. Can I give you all some great news? I ain't him. I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the compelling minister. He's alone can give eyes to see and ears to hear. He alone can change a manufactured excuse heart. To a surrendered heart. And that's what he does. Thanks for allowing me to work my way through all three of these parables. But today, if you're here and you, I want you to know you're on the invitation list. But you got to come to the table. I've tried to tell you how much Jesus has loved you. It's a compelling message. I want you to know it's not about us. It's about him in you. And he has given himself to you. I want you to know, and I'm praying for the Spirit of God to be at work in your life. So I want to ask you, is there any reason you shouldn't come to Jesus today? Say, Pastor, there's not. I'll pray with you. There'll be people up here to pray with you afterwards. Can I invite you to the table? Not just to the list. To feast at his table. Don't let oxen. Don't let spouses, don't let business, don't let anything be an excuse not to come to him. Now, folks, can I ask you a question? Do you long to see his church full? Do you long to see his church full? 
Yet in our nation, it's emptying. Don't look to the church to come up with a program. It's compelling message messengers who go out in the spirit of God. If you want his church full, go to the highways, to the hedges. Hedges were the boundary of the city. Not only go to the streets and the lanes, go beyond the hedges. Go, go to them. Pursue them relentlessly. Bring them to hear of Christ. Bring them so that the seat beside you that's empty is filled with someone you brought to hear him. With a compelling message, with a heart constrained by Christ and with the work of the spirit of God working through you. I listen. I know the Lord will fill his church. I know he will fill it because he tells me all that the father give to me shall come to me. All shall come to me. But I want to be a part of this. I know his people will be brought to him and will fill his table. I know that's going to happen, but I want to be a part of it. And I also know something else. There's still room at the table. Harry, how do you know? Because he hasn't come back yet. When the table's full, he'll come back. But he hasn't come back yet. So it's not filled yet. And because it's not filled, I want it to be filled. And I know it's not filled because he hasn't come. Therefore, I, you, me, will go. We'll not only go to our friends, go to our family. We'll go to those who need him. And that's everybody. We'll go with the lanes. We'll go to the streets. We'll go to the highways. We'll even go beyond the hedges. But we'll go relentlessly showing them the love that the host of the table has for them through us. Long to see his churches full with all the chosen race who would together sing His redeeming grace. Let's pray. God, thank You so much for the grace and mercy that's found in Christ. Thank You so much for the joy of serving Christ. Thank You, O God, that You allow us to not only come to the table, compelling us with Others who came to us, compelling messengers, a compelling message and the Holy Spirit that came to us. But now you send us from the table out to fill up the room and the table for Christ. So, God, please give us a lifestyle of compelling evangelism. Taking the good news into a dry and weary land. To everyone, because everyone needs our Savior. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, 
Or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reader, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.